quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it as we uh, consider it together this evening. Please be seated. So back in early July when I agreed uh, to preach tonight, I did not know which one of the Song of Ascents would be assigned to me. So when Pastor Kerr uh, messaged me and let me know it would be Psalm 131, I immediately dropped what I was doing. I was probably on a ladder. Uh, went and found my Bible to see what I would got myself into. Afterwards, I messaged Matthew back with my first impression. Me. Wow. That's a short one. I guess I've got about seven weeks to figure out what being a weaned child means. Matthew, if you don't know already, dot, 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 winky, smiley face, emoticon. Well, obviously, I experientially and cognitively know what it means to be weaned. Uh, and I didn't need to go look up the Merriam-Webster's definition of weaned, which, by the way, is to accustom a young child or animal to take food otherwise than by nursing, or to detach from a source of dependence. Even though I, I knew these things, I still pondered over the inclusion of this word to the psalm, because it's not what I expected. Why did the psalmist choose to add a modifier to child, which denotes detaching from a source of dependence? To capture, why did he choose this word to capture our heart's inner relationship with God? One might expect that a, a nursing child might be a better image, uh, an image that reflects our complete dependence upon uh, its mother's milk to express our complete dependence upon God. Indeed, there are some translations that actually flip it, flip the simile as the RSV does when it states, like a child quieted at its mother's breast. In the Hebrew text, however, the psalmist specifically uses the word gamal, which means weaned child. And not only does the psalmist David used that particular word, he places that word in the emphatic position. So clearly, the author wanted to underscore this aspect of being a physically weaned child and conveying the desired spiritual characteristic. So my initial question remained <laughs> from that first message to Pastor Kerr. How does being like a weaned child capture something important about the soul's relationship with God? After all, it's not a common simile we employ. Not once in my 50 years of life has anyone ever responded to the question, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm just like a weaned child in its mother's arms. Or like a weaned child is my soul within me. Never happened. Maybe we can make it a thing going forward. 
So tonight, um, as we look at the characteristics of the believing soul that the psalmist seeks to encourage uh, in us, in our relationship and walk with God, we'll seek to answer this question, what does it mean to be like a winged child? David first answers this question negatively in verse 1 by describing the opposite characteristics of the weaned child. Notice the word not appears three times in these four short lines of verse. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Here David confesses his humility by denying that he sinfully elevates himself, that he denigrates others, or presumes to take the place of God. Let's take a moment to briefly look at three of these different aspects that capture the sin of self-centered pride that the psalmist seeks to drive away. The first quality of self-centeredness is a heart lifted up. Your translation might say something like haughty, or some translations say proud. If we're paraphrasing to our text as some modern idiom, we might say uh, a heart that's puffed up uh, to capture uh, someone with an overinflated sense of self. And you probably know someone like that, and I'll let you fill that person's uh, image and face in. Uh, hopefully it's not me. Here, David is describing a person whose pride has led to a dramatic overestimation of their own abilities and a complete blindness to one's own weaknesses. They're proud. They're, they're puffed up. The second quality of self-centeredness uh, that he warns us against, our eyes raised too high, our haughty eyes, here, David describes people whose arrogance places them in a position to look down on other people, we might say. And these two traits often go together. Uh, it's often say, said that um, the direction of the eyes reveals the direction of the heart. If the first quality pridefully overestimates the self, the second one arrogantly undervalues other people, seeing them as inferior to oneself or maybe a stepping stone uh, to one's own uh, self-glorification. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount uh, captures these two aspects of the self-centered hypocrite. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Like Psalm 131, Jesus' teaching captures a person who blindly diminishes his own faults while passing a judgment that increases the faults of others. The third quality of self-centeredness um, that uh, David uh, illuminates in verse 1 is an inordinate concern with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Here David describes someone possessing a presumptuous ambition to elevate oneself, even to the point of seeking to take the place of God. Anselm famously expressed it similarly when he say, stated, 
I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate thy depths. I by no means think my intellect equal to them, but I long to understand in some degree thy truths, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. It's not a healthy uh, aspiration to improve oneself that the psalmist enjoins us against here, but what Eugene Peterson describes as ambition or aspiration gone crazy. Aspiration is the channeled creative energy that moves us to grow in Christ, shaping goals in the spirit. Ambition takes those same energies for growth and development and uses them to make something tawdry and cheap, sweatily knocking together a babble when we could be vacationing in Eden. The prideful, presumptuous arrogance of the self-centered longs for the power, knowledge, and place that belongs to God alone. These three characteristics, pride, arrogance, ambition, combine in a sinful self-centeredness and self-sufficiency that has plagued humanity from the very beginning. This self-centeredness is what led Adam to desire the fruit in the garden, to, to make himself like God, possessing knowledge of good and evil. It's what led the people on the plain of Shinar to build a tower to the heavens, to make a name for themselves. It's what made the people of Israel to demand that Aaron make us a gods, who, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. It's what made the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him. And sadly, it's a sin that continues to afflict us today. Self-centeredness is a sin that particularly characterizes our own materialistic and self-exalting culture that seeks to get everything we can for ourselves, whether it's money, fame, possessions, power, attention, whatever you can think of. We have people seeking to, to, to bring more to themselves at whatever the cost. What scripture describes as the most basic of sins, sinful pride, the sin of taking things into your own hands, the sin of being your own God, the sin of grabbing what is there while you can get it, our culture now encourage us as basic wisdom. Increase yourself by any means possible. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. We're people who seem to be ever questing more for ourselves, and new technologies have only increased our opportunities for self-aggrandizement. I remember a, a funny posting uh, that circulated uh, in the early days of, of Facebook um, uh, that translated the meaning of, of what we would consider very typical, banal Facebook posting. It went something like this. Here is a photo of my beach vacation. Translation, see, I'm better than you. Here's a picture of my, trans, uh, of my children. Translation, see, I'm better than you. Here's a photo taken with my new iPhone. Translation, see, I'm better with you. Here's a picture of my dinner. Translation, see, I'm better than you. And it went on and on and on. We've invented selfie sticks. Our phones have cameras that uh, 
face both directions so you don't even have to turn around to take a picture of yourself. We constantly seek more likes, more thumbs ups, more retweets, more followers, more views, to the extent that some people just make a living by promoting themselves. Our culture encourages us to buy more, be dissatisfied with what we already possess, all the while telling us we deserve it. We covetously look at our neighbors, at our classmates, at our coworkers, at our family members, people online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we tell ourselves that we are the ones that really deserve that thing, that promotion, that grade, that house, that vacation, and on and on. These are just a few of the many expressions of that self-centered and self-sufficient pride that David warns us against in Psalm 131. As James Montgomery Boyce so succinctly stated, learning to subdue pride is the most important of all lessons in Christian character, since pride is the most serious and pervasive of all vices. So here is the first part of an answer to our central question. What does it mean to be like a weaned child? Think about it. What is more desperately self-centered than an unweaned child? Think about it. It's like the monstrous meat-eating plant from the musical Little Shop of Horrors, which constantly wails, feed me, Seymour, feed me. Except now it's the nursing child while the mother's in the grocery store screaming out and it's cry, feed me, mama, feed me. Or while the mother is on a Zoom conference call, feed me, mama, feed me. Or while the mother is trying to worship God in the middle of church, feed me, mama, feed me. Or while the mother is in the midst of a deep sleep, exhausted by the work of the day and the repeated demands of this child, and it cries out, feed me, mama, feed me. Any time, day or night, any place, public or private, the unweaned child can think no further than what it wants right then, right there. Sorry, Donna and Rebecca. <laughs> this will be your living reality all too soon. I remember after the birth of Anne Reese, uh, one of my sisters uh, asked me if I got up in the middle of the night uh, when the, the child cried out to help with the baby. And I replied that, yeah, I, I got up, but there was nothing I could do to help that child. I didn't have anything they wanted. I remember uh, one of our newborns, uh, you know, holding it, cradling it, and, and all of a sudden it, it latched on to my bare chest. And with this look at me of like horror, horror and fear and dismay was like, what's wrong here? And I just looked down, sorry kid, I got nothing for you. The child just uh, desperately wailed after that for its mother. Feed me mama, feed me. So we can understand why David in verse two twice uses the picture of a weaned child to convey the characteristics of the soul's healthy relationship to God. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
David has undergone a transformation. He's come through the weaning process and now trusts God to provide for him. Not on David's terms, but on God's terms. Before he was weaned, David wanted only what wanted God only for what he could get from God. After he was weaned, having learned that God loved him and would care for him even if it was not exactly the way that David expected or desired, he came to love God for God himself. Jesus often used children to counteract this human bentness toward prideful self-centeredness. When the disciples came to him asking, who's the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus took a child <laughs> and put it in their midst and said, truly I say to you that unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the gospel, Jesus employs the child to emphasize Christian humility. But in Psalm 131, David specifically uses the weaned child to express a different characteristic, that of contentment. Notice the verbs that he employs here that capture what is being like a, what it is like to be a weaned child. He uses the verbs calmed and quieted. Jeremiah Burroughs defined Christian contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, notice the word quiet there, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. David emphasizes the calmness and quietness of contentment in contrast with the, uh, the, the rolling pride and arrogance and disruption and ambition of self-centeredness. In opposition to the desperate crying out of the hungry nursing child, here we have a calm and quieted soul with no mention of its circumstances. As Charles Spurgeon so wonderfully described in talking of this verse, to the weaned child his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forgo the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. David is telling us that our souls need to be weaned as well as our bodies so that we can grow and be truly content in all our circumstances and in our relationship with God. We have to be weaned from earthly attachments in order to grasp the truer realities of heaven. We have to be weaned from trust in self alone in order to trust in God alone. We have to be weaned from our woefully inadequate self-righteousness in order that we can grasp the purely gracious righteousness offered by faith in Christ. Paul well expresses this being weaned from self in Philippians chapter 3. You might remember where he first lists all the things into which he had once placed so much confidence and so much pride. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
but a change took place in Paul's life. He goes on to describe how his self had been realigned by the gospel. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. It is the embrace of Christ that Paul now seeks, having been weaned from everything that he once placed so much confidence and trust. An ancient Irish poem that has since become a beloved hymn beautifully expresses the redeemed soul's new way of relating to God. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Just as the weaned child can now relate to its mother and enjoy her love in a truer and deeper way, freed from its earlier purely selfish need and desire, so now the spiritually weaned child of God can experience the comforting calm and quiet rest in God, who has so wonderfully demonstrated his love for us in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins on the cross. As one commentator noted on this passage, the Christian is not like the infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as means of fulfillment of his own wishes. Christian faith is not a neurotic despondency, but a childlike trust. We do not have a God who forever indulges our whims instantly, but a God whom we can trust with our desires. The Christian is not a native, innocent infant who has no identity apart from a feeling of being comforted and protected and catered, but a person who has discovered an identity given by God which can be enjoyed best and fully in a voluntary trust in God. We do not trust and do not cling to God desperately out of fear and the panic of insecurity. We come to him freely in faith and love. So here is the second part of the answer to our central question, what does it mean to be like a weaned child? The weaned child with his mother presents a picture of the quiet calm and trust that comes from the loving embrace of God. It's a contentment that allows us to steer through the multitudes of storms and sufferings that buffet us through life. As Paul describes at the end of Philippians, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The psalmist has learned he doesn't need what God provides. He needs God. The contentment conveyed by this image of the weaned child is an easy trait to understand. It's a much harder one to practice. The English Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs uh, called contentment in every condition a great art to be learned, a spiritual mystery. His little book, which I encourage uh, you to take up, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, provides a thorough unpacking of this spiritual gift, of the sins that inhibit it, and the practices that nurture it in the believing heart. One image from the text that I like, and I probably like it because it's a nautical one, um, provides a helpful reminder of how our holding fast to God equips us to endure all things. He said, you can never make a ship go steady by propping it up outside. You know there must be ballast within the ship to make it go steady. And so there is nothing outside us that can keep our hearts in a steady way, but that which is within us. It's the abiding presence of Emmanuel, God with us, made God in us by the Holy Spirit that gives us the grace to be content with God and able to quietly and calmly endure the trials of life like a weaned child with its mother. Finally, the inward self-respection of verses 1 and 2 gives way to David's uh, outward call to his community to hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. This last verse turns us from contemplating David uh, to his call to his fellow uh, creatures to follow his example and that of his greater son, Jesus Christ. Our future hope comes not through self-confidence and self-righteousness, but through trust in the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Biblical hope is more than the selfish desire of a nursing child. Hope for a particular conclusion. Instead, here hope denotes the confident anticipation of that which we do not yet see. Our confidence is based not on a particular end, but our confidence comes through trust in the one who is both Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Paul expresses how this hope equips us to endure all things. As he says in Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I end the sermon just as David ends the psalm, asking you where your hope is placed. Are you trusting in yourself with a belief 
in the superiority of your own innate powers and a confidence in your self-righteousness? Or have you been weaned from yourself? And like Paul, place no confidence in the flesh. Instead, being wholly reliant on the love and mercy of God. I pray that your soul too is like that of a weaned child and that you too may have that hope that when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen.